1: Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. I'm your host, Stephen Dozeman, and with me today is Jason Reed. Reed is a professor of philosophy at the University of Southern Maine, and he is the author of The Politics of Trans Individuality, published in 2015, and The Micropolitics of Capital, Marks on the Prehistory of the Present in 2003. Jason Reed, thank you for being with us today.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: So before we dive in, can you just introduce yourself to audiences, give them a quick sense of what your main research interests are?
2: Sure. Well, as you can see with the books, uh, one big interest, uh, research interest of mine has been Marx and contemporary Marxism, to which I would also add Spinoza. And uh, I mean, that's as far as the history of philosophy goes beyond that. I'm just broadly interested in critical approaches to contemporary society, culture and politics. Um, And I come primarily from a background in uh, philosophy, specifically continental philosophy. Um, But I, you know, I I teach at a small uh, state university. So I, I teach in areas ranging from the history of philosophy to political theory to contemporary philosophy and kind of like taking that same kind of broad approach to my research and publications.
1: Okay. So the introduction to your book is Trans a Concept for Marxism. So briefly, what is trans individuality and what is its importance for Marxist and more broadly progressive political thought and practice today?
2: Trans is, well, the concept or term was coined by uh, Gilbert Simondon, but I'm very interested in its broader application than one specific philosopher's discussion of it, I saw it and became interested in it, saw, saw the term come up in in a, in a variety of different discussions. And in all those discussions, it pretty much meant one thing uh, or, or one thing primarily, and that is a way of thinking about uh, society and social relations outside of a kind of binary between the individual versus society, a kind of zero sum game in which The individual is seen as something either prior to or apart from society, and society or the social relations or the collective is understood to be something standing above and beyond the individual. Trans-individuality posits the mutual constitution of uh, both individuation and forms of collectivity coming out of the same overlapping sets of relations. So part of its uh, importance then is – I do feel like we are in a cultural and political moment in which the individual is predominant or a way of looking at things through the perspective of the individual is predominant. Or when we do look at that things that are more collective or social, we tend to see them in terms of what uh Jeremy Gilbert calls Leviathan logics, where we see the society itself acting as it's as an agent as if it was like a, a person writ large. And I think that loses sight of precisely where some of the most important things happen, both uh, socially, culturally and as well as politically. And that is um, the relations that constitute different ways of people being individuated in different ways in which forms of collective association, but also collective feeling and belonging together are are constituted. So that's uh, that's, I think, part of the importance of. The concept it helps us get out of this this zero sum binary between something called the individual versus something called society.
1: Yeah, that's great. I found the book really helpful for kind of breaking that binary down. Um, you start with some very uh, much older thinkers who aren't dealing with trans individuality specifically, but they kind of plant the seeds that'll get picked up, uh, in the last few decades. Um, you start with Spinoza who offers a critique of, uh, cause and effect and Talos. Um, you write that this doctrine concerning the end, uh, turn nature completely upside down for what is really a cause it considers as an effect and conversely. Um, so can you kind of unpack his critique of cause and effect and finalism and What is the kind of trans-individual implication for this?
2: Yeah, well, uh, I mean, most people are familiar with the fact that Spinoza has a critique of teleology or finalism when it comes to a kind of theological problem. Like He thinks it's absurd to believe in the notion of a God that would ever do something to act towards some kind of end, because that in itself presupposes that God is not well, for him, ultimately the totality of nature, but the idea of a God acting to realize certain ends is a strange kind of anthropocentric notion in which God is... uh, I apologize for that background sound. It's not (laughs) not coming from me. I'm in my office and someone is moving furniture nearby. I'm sorry about that. No worries. When it comes to trans individuality, it's also worth pointing out that Spinoza is just as much a critic of... um, teleology or ends when it comes to individual actions. Not that he thinks they don't exist, but as Spinoza says in the appendix to the part one of the ethics, you know, we are born ignorant of the causes of things and conscious of our desires. And to some extent, what we're most ignorant of are sometimes the causes of our own desires, right? Spinoza says that we, we, uh, we desire something not because it is good, but we call it good because we desire it. We're often unaware of the conditions that shape and form our own um, desires and take our desires as sort of naturally given. They belong to us. They stem from us. They must necessarily be ours. And I think that Spinoza offers an important understanding. Especially, I mean, I suppose I wrote this in the 17th century, but we are living in a world where. We're more and more confronted with the manufacture of our own desires, habits, and tastes. I mean, we're we're vaguely aware of this. We know that we're subject to advertising. We know that that things like social media constantly manipulate how certain things appear, and so on. But we still hold on to this notion of seeing ourselves, to use Spinoza's terminology once again, as a kingdom within a kingdom, as if things happening in the world don't really affect us we're somehow still sovereign over our ourselves and i think spinoza's awareness that um, in order to understand uh, our desires we first have to understand the way in which our desires aren't just the cause of things they are also themselves effects they're both effects and causes They are effects of things happening around us and they're causes of our own actions and so on. But they're both rather than simply see our desire as a cause to tie into the the passage you cited.
1: Okay. Yeah. Um, From there, you move on to Hegel, who's uh, uh, coming back in kind of a big way. He's incredibly cited now in the last few years. um, You look um, at him as both being a critic of contemporary notions of individualism, but he is not buying into some sort of nostalgia for a pre-competitive kind of social unity or singular cohesion. Um, So what for Hegel is the relationship between the individual and civil society? And how does this uh, lead to a trans individual um, idea, mainly of like recognition of oneself in civil society?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I'm not, in some sense, uh, Hegel's a little bit, out of sync with certain notions of transigality. He's generally seen as more of a philosopher of recognition of intersubjectivity as the relationship between individuals recognizing themselves. But at the same time, um, Hegel does at times uh, refer to something that goes beyond um, recognition and the way in which people not only recognize themselves in the eyes of others, you know, in the famous master-slave thing, but recognize or see themselves in, in the social relations that produce them. As far as civil society goes, civil society plays a very specific role, especially in, in Hegel's uh, philosophy of right, where he more or less breaks uh, ethical life into its three component spheres. There's first is the family. The second is civil society, and the third is the state. And he almost tells a kind of narrative of, in the family, there's a sort of ethos of all for one and one for all. The duties and rights and uh, of one are not thoroughly dis- distinguished from others. You know that the family sort of cares for for everyone equally, and then uh, in civil, you eventually have to leave that and you enter into civil society which he's, he characterized as a relation defined by um, kind of initially individual self-interest. I mean, he was very – Hegel was a, a reader uh, of early political economy like Adam Smith and so on. Um, but he also wanted to point out how this this idea of seeing yourself as as kind of individual self-interest, it emerges, it plays a necessary role, it kind of liberates you from the confines of the – of the family, which can be suffocating in their in their failure to see the distinction between the individual uh, and others. But then civil society has its limitations as well, that individual self-interest constantly finds itself, uh, despite itself, needing the cooperation with others. And that's what brings us to the state. Um, and I think for me, that's, Part of the real limitation of of Hegel is not so much uh, that he's so intersubjective, although I think that's there too, but going back to the sort of questions about about teleology and Spinoza, I think part of the problem for for me in reading these passages in Hegel is that it is such a teleological narrative you 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 start out in the family, you see the limitations of that you go into civil society and you arrive at the state whereas i'm more interested in thinking trans individuality the way in which we're constantly caught in intersecting and overlapping uh, uh, subject positions or modes of individuation that that we don't actually ever depart one of these finally. We're constantly kind of trying to hold together the different ways in which different institutions uh, individuate us.
1: Yeah, so the kind of third and final person in your tour of kind of the early – uh, inspiration for trans individuality is marx um and you develop his notion of species being um what exactly is it, and how does it kind of work to disrupt both uh kind of following along with Hegel the bourgeois notion of the property owning individual as well as capitalism more broadly
2: yeah, um well species being you know something that marx primarily talks about in his in his early writing Um, and it's this it's this notion that that uh, the partly what makes human beings unique for marx is this idea that uh whereas and this goes against what the, the notion sounds like people hear species being it sounds like it's very kind of almost darwinian and actually marx saw it as something very different than that it's more this notion of a kind of generic being that or, or as he puts it that you know human beings are the only beings that that instead of producing for their own limited uh, individual uh, needs or even the immediate needs of their family they produce and relate to the species in other words that we create things that are kind of offered to humanity in general rather than for our own specific interest. And this goes above and beyond what any animal would do. As much as the animals build or so on, they do so only for their immediate needs. Uh, it also, um, it, it also uh, f- for Marx, suggests that human beings are, by definition, kind of undefined and and it's uh, and, and can can constantly define themselves by taking on new qualities, new habits, and so forth. And the part of what Mark, especially in his earlier writing, saw as critical of of capitalism is rather than when he says you know, this line that life becomes a means to mere life, is that life as our kind of capacity of species being to to interact with the totality of the species and the entirety of nature and, and define who we are becomes subservient to that minimal nature. Necessity of just staying alive. In other words, we we give up having a life in the broad sense of the word that we use just to live. Um, And this reversal has a lot to do with the the role the the individual plays in society. And early on, I think Marx was very interested in kind of following up Hegel's critique in the sense that when he read say for example the declaration of the rights of man and citizen he saw how all these rights were really ultimately the rights of an egotistical individual against society that wanted its privacy and ultimately its property protected from others as marx i think uh studied capitalism more and more he became less convinced i think of an opposition between the species as a totality and and Uh, and mankind's capacity in the individual as kind of a bourgeois isolated individual and began to recognize that the real contradiction of capitalism is that capitalism utilizes our uh, species capacity in terms of uh, production. When we go to work, we often go to work and utilize our abilities to cooperate, to interact with others, um, while at the same time kind of reducing us to an isolated individual, say, in the sphere of consumption. When we we go into the sphere of consumption or the marketplace and generally even the market for for labor, we act as atomized, isolated individuals. But when we we work, when we produce, we engage in a more uh, uh, collective or productive um, endeavor.
1: Okay, so that kind of closes off your kind of introductory chapters. From here, you move on to um, Etienne Balabar, um, who kind of develops trans individuality um, along the line of political anthropology um, and kind of blurs the lines between nature and nurture. Um, So how is he kind of critiquing this binary and um, what kind of is he trying to replace it with for his theory of subjectivity?
2: Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, you know, Ballybar is one of the people who's been responsible for both the the revival of this term transindividuality and has really suggested the broadening of its use. And in some sense, he's the one who prompted the idea that, as the old saying from Borges goes, you know, every author creates their precursors that, you know, Simon Doan wrote about transindividuality. But then, as Ballybar suggests, once we have this term as a way of looking at things, we can go back primarily at philosophers who are more seen on the holistic side of things, on, on sort of espousing a kind of totality, whether it be substance, spirit, or species being, in the case of Spinoza, Hegel, and Marx, and maybe see that what they really weren't talking about that. They were trying in their own way to, you know, avant la lettre, talk about uh, trans-individuality. Um, and then his own work on it, uh, as you say, he's very interested, and it's a strange thing to be interested, in, given that he's, primarily known, especially in the U.S., as being a student of, of Althusser and part of this anti-humanist uh, trajectory in Marxism that he's very interested in political anthropology, um, which he differentiates a little bit from a kind of philosophical anthropology. And and for him, it, it almost harks back to a certain notion of, of, of species being. And I think he does see that there's a a similarity between species being as Marx talks about it and 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 trans individuality, in the sense that when he talks about anthropological difference, uh, what interests him is the way in which every every definition of the human um and he's primarily interested in the way in which politics can't quite get away from. Definitions of humanity or human nature. I mean, the you know, in the way in which you know, sometimes all the political debate seems like it's a debate between Hobbes on one side saying man is a wolf to man, um, and we need political institutions to to uh, curtail our, our our destructive tendencies, or on the other side you have uh, Spinoza really saying man is a god to man, and that and that uh, there's nothing more useful to us than to enter into some kind of social relations that makes it possible for us each individually to do more and engage with more. Um, and I think that, that for ultimately for Ballybar um, really, we have to see that both those are um, internal possibilities in the sense that there is no, a political anthropology means that there is no um, creation of society without a formation of a particular notion of of humanity and there is no notion of humanity that doesn't already presuppose or carry with it its own notion of politics so we're kind of caught in this a little bit of a vicious circle in which our notions of politics our notions of humanity are constantly um reinforcing each other and uh and in some sense you know, the only way uh out of this circle is to constantly examine both ends the way in which uh, we're constantly naturalizing or taking for granted things that are socially produced um in the sense that we 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 take what society our social relations produce and pr- proclaim it to be what human nature is um uh, and and at the same time e- examining the the institutions that create and reinforce particular notions of Uh, of of human nature.
1: Yeah, that's really good. So you kind of were just alluding to this, but the next thing I'm wondering about Balabar, he kind of moves this towards a kind of critique of how we think about the relationship between economy and politics. Um, Or maybe you could use the terms base and superstructure, Uh, maybe. Uh, But what is kind of the nature of this interaction between these two spheres for him and what implications does this have for thinking about certain kind of uh, larger hegemonic questions that are being discussed today?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things I was, I was trying to do, or or this is maybe one of the things that appears in retrospect, thinking about the book now, I was, I began to realize that that part of the subtext for, for undoing this binary between the individual and society also had to do with rethinking the relationship between, as, you, as one might want to put it, economy and politics, or base and superstructure. Um in, in Balibar's terms, um what interests him is this notion of what he calls the other scene. Um and 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 there he suggests that things that are happening in the economy only really have their effects um, uh, when they pass into or or, are transformed into um, politics, but really politics understood as subjectification. Um, I mean, one way, like just to give a quick example to help think about this, you could say that, say, as many people have said, um, that, you know, we're living through an age in which there's an increasing sense of uh, precarity um, uh, and scarcity in the economy. People are constantly worried that their job might disappear um, and so on. And I think that and there's been debate back and forth. How much is this an actuality? How much is this just a, a kind of a story that's being told? And, and uh, especially because it helps make people if people think their jobs are going to disappear. They're much more willing to go along with whatever. Is demanded of them, and so on. And I think partly the issue here is that is that whatever economic effects there are, there are of of say increased automation, increased outsourcing, or globalization of jobs, and so on, those effects only really become a real once they are translated into in into this other scene, into politics, and they become the basis of. Sh- different political attitudes um, in terms of, and they can go, I mean, they can go multiple different directions. I think these, the effects aren't, aren't, aren't uniform in the sense that, uh, you know, as we've seen right now across the world, precarity doesn't necessarily mean people become more and more critical of, of capitalism. It could, it could have its effects in terms of increased feelings of hostility toward immigrants and so on and so forth. But that the, the, the economic conditions are constantly shifting over into, into, into political relations and vice versa. So there's this constant back and forth between these uh, uh, between the politics and the economy um, uh, or base and superstructure. And that back and forth, I think, has everything to do with how people individuate themselves and how people
0: slash NBN50 to get 50% off. Right. So from here, you
1: kind of backtrack to Gilbert Simondon, who you said coined the term trans individuality. Um, And you talk about how he kind of coined it partly to discuss the binary between uh, kind of what you might call organic personhood uh, versus inorganic technology, uh, which was kind of a big debate in a lot of twentieth uh, century continental philosophy. Um, but he connects it to alienation um, and subjectivity. So can you kind of unpack the relationship between subjectivity, alienation, and technology, and what sort of subject do we kind of end up with for Simon Don?
2: Yeah, um, Well, I think one of the things that 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 Simon does is he you know he expands the notion of alienation beyond. Uh, a strictly marxist one, in the sense that that um for him for him alienation has to do with everyone's relationship to a machine, especially in as um they don't see the machine- machines as constitutive of their culture. I mean one of the things that interests Simon Do is in the early work on the on the mode of existence of technical objects is this this bizarre split between why do we you know we refer to some of the things that we we as human beings produce as culture and we see them as necessarily full of meaning and shaping who we are and we see the other things that we produce as technology and see them as some in some sense bereft of meaning and just simply as tools and i think that that Simondon thinks that's a fundamental fallacy that we um, we alienate ourselves from technology when we think of technology as just technology and not as itself as a kind of social relation. Um, and then on, on top of that, one of the definitions that I find really striking about alienation in terms of, of, of Simondon um, coming off of that is Paulo Virno revives the term alienation with respect to Simondon and technology, but he takes it on a different sense. He argues that we're alienated something um, when it conditions us, but we are incapable of sort of acting on how it conditions us when it becomes part of a kind of black box. Um, And I think that's interesting to me because I think Simondon was writing, you know, earliest stuff on technology in the, in the fifties when technology did, Perhaps seem more alien to us um, and that you know machines seem big and noisy and 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 we're kind of outside of the intimate spheres of our lives and I think nowadays I almost feel like we're more alienated from technology when we we see it as constitutive of our world, but we don't we don't have any real knowledge of how it acts on our world. I mean, it's another variation of the Spinoza's thing that we're, 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 we're born conscious of our desires and ignorant of the causes of things. And the way in which technology as something, which, which affects and shapes how we make sense of the world and act in the world becomes something that we are, um, we are, uh, alienated from because it acts on us, but we have no real understanding of how it acts on us. Um, and so I think that, I mean, Simon Dunn was sort of arguing for this notion that we needed to create a new kind of like technical culture. We needed to understand the way in which, um, and it's something that people like Bernard Stiegler picked up on the way in which there isn't this divide between something called culture and something called technology as two different spheres, but that we're always living in a kind of technological culture or a culture which is thoroughly made possible by technology. Um, and thought that was a way to sort of overcome this kind of alienation. Um, and I still think that that's an important statement. But I think that part of the task now is not so much to bridge the gap between us and technology, but to recognize that that gap has already been bridged and that we have so much technology shaping even those spheres of culture that we used to think of as being opposed to technology in the sense of like arts, images, et cetera, are things that are constantly produced and circulated by machines in a way that goes above and beyond what Simondon's writing about.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, From there, you kind of connect Simondon then back to Spinoza, um, and you actually pick up the term affect as being central in the development of both individuals and collectives. Um, what role does affect play, um, in the genesis of both of these figures for both Spinoza and Simondon? What are they kind of, what are you kind of seeing as the overlap here?
2: Well, I think for both of them, it is trans individuation. It's the constitution of both, uh, collectivity and, um, and individuals. I mean, this is something that, uh, uh, Spinoza in his political treatise, he thought that that to the extent we can talk meaningfully about any any group of people constituting a, a collective, the common thing couldn't be uh, a thought or a, a, an idea because that was almost too much to demand of a bunch of people to have all at the same time. And it couldn't be an action. It could only be a common sort of feeling that kind of unites people as if with one mind. And Simondon thought thought a similar kind of thing, that affects are a big part of how uh, collectivities are constituted. But they also both, in different ways, thought it's constitutive of, of individuation. Now, for Simondon, and this is where a lot of some of the contemporary discussion of affect and affect studies comes in, uh, Simondon made a distinction between affects and emotions. Affects were much more kind of incohate, like a, a vague sense of a mood, whereas emotions become very nameable and describable and determinable, like, like a feeling about this specific thing. Um, even though Spinoza consistently uses the term affect and not not emotions, he similarly th- thought there was a kind of, of individuation in, in the part three of the ethics dedicated to affect. It ends with the notion that there are really as many different loves and hates as there are objects to love and hate and as many different, um, loves and hates as there are subjects. Um, and and as much as Spinoza gives this very broad geometric discussion of the basic definition that, you know, that joy is an affect, an increase in power, sadness is a decrease. Love is joy combined with an object. It's very kind of minimal. His point like a geometry is to use these very broad definitions to, make it possible to sketch out very specific types of individuation. So um so collectivity and individuality are both understood to have a primarily affective basis. Um, and that is both the commonality of collectivity and individuality. And that I think also is is their point of often their point of difference because uh, how people how people resolve these these the tension between sort of collective feelings in the sense that, you know, as, as I was saying a, a few minutes ago, like one could talk about a precarity or a, a kind of economic anxiety as a collective, as something which exceeds the individual and is a, a general kind of structure of feeling of our times. And then how we individuate ourselves has a lot to do with how we, um, how we situate ourselves with respect to that to that anxiety. I mean, um, deciding to you know deciding that you can overcome it by sort of uh, 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 be, you know being the hardest worker and like you know and individually kind of overcome these feelings of anxiety is a very different motivation, a very different desire than say deciding that you that one needs to engage in in radical politics to, to transform collective decisions. But they're both. Ways of kind of individuating this this collective or shared um, affect of precarity or, or, or anxiety.
1: Yeah. So from here, you go to um, Bernard Stiegler. Um, he is, you kind of start with talking about uh, how he sees consumption as being integral uh, to contemporary capitalism. Uh, how does Stiegler? expand and complicate the sphere of circulation to include consumption?
2: Well, for Stigler, I mean, Stigler says, uh, you know, that, that, that Marx didn't think enough about consumption, which is not entirely true, but I, w- I would argue that it's probably more true that consumption looked very different when Marx was writing. But oddly, despite the fact that Stigler says that Marx doesn't understand consumption, uh, on some level, he uses a very Marxist term to make sense of consumption, at least in part, and that term is proletarianization. And what what Stiegler sees as a commonality is 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 just like what Marx analyzed happening in the factory, where part of po- proletarianization was a kind of dispossession of um, not just you know, not owning the means of production, but also a dispossession of knowledge that partly what happened when you begin to have industrialization and development of technology is that you go from having a skilled worker who, who knows how to use tools to, to do certain things to putting a lot of that knowledge in the machine, right? The machine works on a, a set pattern and all the worker has to do is oversee, you know, as Mark says, become the conscious organ to the machine. And Sigler says a similar kind of thing is happening throughout Culture, in the sense that um we have you know we need less knowledge um of of life in the sense that um you know when you have a microwave ready meal, it knows cooking for you when you use google Maps, it knows it knows how to get places, it knows the lay of your city for you, and this this is increasing proletarianization of life where we're not required. To learn anything, and just like Marx saw proletarianization in the factory, reducing the worker to simple labor power, just this capacity to work that's undifferentiated and can be moved from from job to job and becomes entirely at capital's whims, Stigler sees that same things happening in culture. We're kind of becoming buying power. We're losing a lot of our um, our ability to make sense of the world and to navigate the world, and we're just becoming. Consumers. So it's a similar kind of cultural and economic revolution that, if Marx understood that capitalism began with a kind of revolution that transformed people of various walks and and, and backgrounds into just simply workers, that Stigler sees in a matter of turning people into simply consumers or consumer power, um, and he sees this as a profound. I mean. Stiegler, more than Marx, is interested in, in almost like the existential kind of crisis of this, that when we when we lose these kinds of know-how um, of, of making sense of the world, of being able to, to cook our own food or um, uh, uh, navigate our own way through space or, or whatever else it may be, we're losing a lot of what made possible Individuation, a sense of our, of ourselves. And uh, Stigler almost invokes a more Hegelian notion on this point, point in the, that Hegel in the, ph- in the Phenomenology of Spirit, at one point, de- describes spirit as a kind of an I that is a we and a we that is an I, in the sense that the collective constitutes it through itself through the individual and the individual through the collective. I think Stigler sees contemporary consumer society as the impossibility of saying we. Because as much as we're categorized in different demographics and different brands, those aren't really, for him, we's. They're not like collective belongings. It's like seeing someone who wears the same brand of shoes as you doesn't make you feel like you have a bond with that person. Um, they're not really we's, and they're also not really eyes in the sense that it's impossible for us to have a, a, a sense of, of who we are as long as we relate ourselves to these um, manufactured kind of uh, forms of of consumption. So he sees a real existential breakdown there.
1: Yeah. So that uh, kind of echoes and you, you allude to this, this is kind of echoing the initial Frankfurt school critiques of capitalist culture. Um, But you identify a temporal twist. Um, You write for Stiegler, the loss of individuation is not to be found in the predominance of stock characters and stereotypes nor in the way which economic necessity itself necessarily imposes a particular uniformity of action, but in the synchronization of consciousness that destroys the basis for individuation. Um, So what is this kind of real time synchronization of consciousness and what are its implications for late capitalism and us, its subjects?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, for for Stigler, I mean, one of the things he's very interested in, in, and this is, I think, comes in specific for him in the relationship between temporality and individuation, which was also there in Simondon, but he he really brings it out. And one of the things that interests him about, about temporality and in individuation, and it goes back to sort of thinking about consumption too, is that um, Stigler makes a big distinction between, say, uh, reading a book and watching a movie in terms of temporality—that when I read a book, its its time is really my time, in the sense that I could at any moment put the you know put the book down, hit a, a passage that seems really striking to me, and stop and think for a minute, only to pick it up later. Um, versus when you watch a movie, you are pretty much you know programmed to follow its time and its temporality. Um, and Stigler sees that what happens with the movie really culminates for him in, in, well, initially with broadcast television in, uh, in this synchronization. I think the thing that, that, that the, the best example of Stigler's idea of synchronization is like whenever there's a real traumatic or, or, or huge event, like a, uh, like a, a terrorist attack or a mass killing or something, um, you know, every, it, it dominates all, all media, all airwaves, etc. but it dominates it in a strange way in which there's like, there's like nothing to know. Um, cause no news has really come out yet. Things are still unclear, but, but everyone's insisting that you, you know, you pay attention to this breaking moment at that moment. Um, and so it's kind of like this strange kind of idea that we're all drawn to the same point, but there's nothing, there's nothing there. Um, and this synchronization is, I think, uh, for Stigler, it, it it destroys the kind of different temporalities that constitute culture. Because not only like am I reading a book at at a different pace and rate than someone else was, but I could have been reading it at a different point in my time, right? I mean, anyone who's reread a book knows like how much the relationship between temporality and reading is a very interesting one, that things seem different at different points in your life. Um, But that those kinds of differences, which are constitutive of individuality in some way, that we're in some sense individuated by the different temporal rhythms and the different temporal ways in which we have approached different things at different points in our life, they're all kind of being destroyed by this tendency towards synchronization, right? If you, I mean, if you go on, say, Twitter or social media, you could always see trending topics, what the synchronization is, right? The sense that like, this is the thing everyone is talking about and you should be talking about it too. And it kind of makes it impossible for anyone to have like uh, a, a different or even interesting, you know, you know, enough hot takes on the same hot topic. You begin to realize there's not much more that can be said because there's just, not much that can be said in the moment at this thing that's demanding everyone to pay attention. So it produces a kind of the synchronization produces a kind of, a kind of ignorance because it destroys the temporal differences that make, make for different and interesting differences of opinion or perspective.
1: Yeah, that, is very Um, thought-provoking. From there, you go to um, Paulo Verno. Um, He talks about the transition from different forms of capitalism, uh, particularly Fordism to post-Fordism. And he sees them kind of at the affective level as uh, moving from like fear to anguish. Um, So what exactly has happened in the transition over the last few decades, both at the economic and the affective level?
2: Yeah. Well, this is, I'm, yeah, I just realized now that I've been kind of using this as my example throughout this discussion. So, we can, you know, it's good. Um, uh, I mean, I think that, that, um, for Virno, the difference between fear and anguish and, you know, Virno a very, you know, uh, syncretic thinker in some ways. He's constantly pulling from different and sometimes even opposed philosophical traditions, a little bit of Heidegger, a little bit of Simodon, a little bit of Spinoza, uh, And you know the the classic fear and anguish distinction he's drawing from um, is this idea that you know fear is a fear of something you know discernible in the world like oh look a snake, and whereas anguish is more of like this fear of kind of like the world itself breaking down, and I think for him like economic insecurity has moved from fear to anguish in this sense of of um, it's not so much that you know like oh I lost my job. At this, you know, in an old Fordist sense, I lost my job at this factory, but there are still other factories. I can go to that other factory. It's more of this sense of like, you know, what do you do when not only your job is gone, but like your entire, like, uh, you know, like, like a whole generation of people are, who are in academia right now are finding that like, not only is like, is there, are there no jobs in the sense no colleges are hiring, but there's a sense in which like, maybe there are no jobs. Maybe there's like that whole way of life is like disappearing. Um and that's a that's a very different kind of fear, the loss of a kind of world in some sense. Um and it's the it's that that affective dimension that 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 Virno is interested in, in the sense that um yeah, you because know, Virno is also working through a very different kind of philosophical anthropology from people like Arnold Galen and so on which is, has an interesting relationship to species being in Marx in the sense that for people like Galen, what, partly what human beings do, given this, this, you know, that human beings were not instinctually locked into a particular part of the world, a particular sets of things in the world, right? But like most of the animal world is, they respond to very specific stimuli. We kind of look at everything from the stars up in the heavens down to the waters and interact with everything. But because of that, because of that, there's almost like a anxiety dimension of species being in these in these writers that it becomes humanity's task to kind of create a regular world for us to inhabit, you know. And that's what the the world of work and so on was for a long time. But that's precisely the world that is being lost in the sense that uh, the constant automation, but also this constant sense of you know, modern jobs where you're not even clear—are you ever really done working? The sense of of you constantly could be doing something more, um, uh, you know, to to secure yourself economically and so on. And that's the sense of anxiety that we've lost. We've lost a stable and regular world produced of the habits of. A kind of you know, nine to five workday with a set uh group of tasks we were performing and created this kind of uh universe of of economic flux in which one constantly could be doing anything, and that's precisely what makes it so so anxiety producing.
1: Yeah, I can definitely Relate to that a lot. Um, so you go on continuing with Ferno that we're living in an age defined by a sort of déjà vu. Uh, what does he mean by that, and what does it kind of mean to live in a time defined by déjà vu?
2: Yeah. Well, well Verno defines déjà vu. He works off of Henri Bergson's idea. What, what that déjà vu? That déjà vu is a kind of misrecognition where. Um, there is, I mean, for Bergson and for a lot of other philosophers of memory, um, Husserl and so on stress this idea that there's memory internal to experience, right? For, for in order to, to have experience to, to, you know, be part of this conversation or anything else, I have to be remembering what happened prior that we really can't, no one can really live in a punctual moment to moment, kind of empirical sense of the world, world. So there's a memory internal to experience. And that déjà vu happens when the memory internal to experience is misrecognized as a memory of an experience. Right? When you say déjà vu, like this happened before, you're kind of right that that there's you're remembering something, but but it didn't happen before some other time. It happened before because there's a memory in the happening of it right now. And uh, Virno oddly uses déjà vu. You know, because he's kind of writing, working with the notion that a lot of people have tried to think through this kind of uh, sense of an end of history or to take the, you know, Jameson's phrase, it's easier to imagine the end of the world, the end of capitalism, um, that we we seem to feel like there's nothing else is possible. Um, everything's, everything's already been done. And so uh, for Virno, the deja vu um, that at a more social and political level has to do with. As we we're, as i was just saying, um, the fact that that capitalism more than any other, I mean, every every human society has dealt with the fact that human beings are um, a kind of set of undetermined potential. But most societies, um, you know, starting with the infant, begin to kind of uh, adapt that potential into a set group of habits, skills, et cetera. But capitalism from its beginning, because as Marx said, capitalism exploits labor power, not specific work. Capitalism increasingly puts to work potential as potential. And, and Virno sees this increasing in the sense that, you know, modern, um, modern jobs uh, uh, are less about a specific set of skills and more about the capacity to develop new skills. I mean, Vierno points to, for example, the way in which professional, the term professional has shifted from denoting the professions, you know, law, medicine, education, et cetera, to the way it appears in contemporary job advertisements as a set of attitudes, right? Professional is an attitude. Um, And this reflects this way in which uh, what is increasingly put to work are undefined sets of skills. So the fact that capitalism puts to work this species being in some sense really means that that it makes it possible to have this kind of deja vu. Since capitalism seems to sell us everything we could possibly desire and seems to put to work every possible capacity, it does look to us like it is – the complete and utter realization of humanity, right? As as its defenders like to say, capitalism is human nature. And that's a kind of deja vu where we're taking the way in which our capacity is being utilized in this particular moment and see it as the end all and be all of of our capacity. So I think Virno thinks that that we are living through a kind of – political cultural deja vu in which there is nothing new under the sun um, everything has been d- tried everything's been done and everything is available for sale and everything we could possibly do is being put to work and um and to some extent you know that's that deja vu is the barrier to our ability to imagine any other
0: Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely.
1: Yeah, the last thing you kind of touch on with Verno kind of seems to be uh, kind of both a product and a coping mechanism. You talk about cynicism. Um, uh, Can you kind of unpack how cynicism kind of fits into all this?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, Virno, I mean, Virno. I think this is Virno's particular relationship to trans individuality. He likes to take what are often seen as individual uh, psychological phenomena, like deja vu, or individual character traits, like cynicism, and he likes to kind of read them against the grain and see them as 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 trans individual in the sense that they are. They manifest themselves in individual attitudes and phenomena, but they are uh, the, the effect of larger social and economic processes. So for him, cynicism is um, is in some sense the the result of a world where, because of this instability and shifting nature of the parameters and demands of work, that when one is constantly going from one set of rules to another set of rules, like from job to job or from task to task, one ends up kind of being a cynic in the sense that a cynic is one who, who doesn't think there's any meta rule. There's no rules of rules. Um, They're all equally valid, you know, uh, in the sense that whatever you're asked to do at, at whatever job is whatever you're supposed to do, and there's no point talking about, you know, these rules make sense or are they any good. Um, they're just the rules that are in 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 uh enforced at a particular moment. Um and so uh and Virdo I think constantly and this is I think what differentiates him from some of his uh fellow uh post-operismo thinkers is that he's very interested in kind of the ambivalence of of, of the deja vu because on the one hand the deja vu is kind of a lockdown but it also makes it possible for us to to see other other ways of, of utilizing our potential and same with the cynicism that the the bad side of course of the cynic is that the cynic is cynical and doesn't think there's any point in talking about whether or not these rules make sense but at the same time that kind of um indifference to rules reflects the way in which uh we're increasingly aware of the manufactured nature of our own existence which uh, the upside of cynicism is it's it's capacity to provoke new ways of creating the rules of our world the downside is it's indifference and it's recognition that no rules are um, no rules are written in stone. No rules are there. There are no transcendent rules of rules. And the upside is, um, if, ever, if 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 all these rules are just constructed, we can construct different and new ways of living in the world.
1: Yeah, so the last figure you look at is Maurizio Lazzarato. Um, he brings us the term new politics. Um, can you kind of unpack what he means by this?
2: Yeah, well, new politics is uh, 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 politics around, I mean, thought um, in some sense, but really I think what, what uh, Lazzarato does is he picks up and kind of an observation from, from, uh, Michel Foucault and, you know, if, if Foucault is famous for his idea of the, not his idea, but his reading of Jerry Bentham's idea of the panopticon of this idea that, you know, the, the shift from a prison, a prison made of walls and bars to a prison sustained by, um, uh, surveillance, uh, in which the, the, there's this idea that we, any of us could be being watched at any moment is a shift in in power power beginning to become all the more effective in that it operates less directly on bodies and more on minds and their sense of possibilities and Lazarato argues that sort of neopolitics are kind of in some sense what comes after Foucaultian discipline or biopolitics and that these are the politics that work on our sense of po- of what is possible. Um, so for him, this is the way in which uh, uh, politics primarily uh, uh, has to do with the creation and uh, maintenance of a particular kind of sense of imagination and a sense of possibility. I mean this kind of overlaps with with what we we're talking about with the way that for virno both deja vu and and cynicism are themselves kind of i uh uh focused around what is possible um and what can be envisioned and so for for uh for L'Azurato, the same thing happens with um uh just, I mean, Lazarado sees a real, a real similarity. What's happening, say, for example, in the realm of the economy with finance in which, you know, the possibility of, of making money is more important than actually making money. Um, and that's what drives up stock prices and so on. But the same thing is happening in and around politics That the, what is possible has, um, and what is imaginable has really become the, the the terrain in which most politics operate on above and beyond um, uh, acting directly on on individuals and their bodies. It's acting on individuals' sense of what is possible.
1: Yeah, so one of the things that's kind of key to Lazzarato's, uh thinking is uh, – the transition in financialization, which we've kind of alluded to at a couple points, kind of living in this flux. Um, but Lazzarato has kind of picked up the post-2008 way this happens um, with debt and indebtedness. Um, how do these inform his reading of new politics and what sort of uh, trans-individual subject does it generate?
2: Yeah, well, I think, you know, debt is a, is a good example of um, – of this kind of new politics, in the sense of it is um, it is a sense of possibility informing and shaping how one acts in the present. Right. I mean, I take I think the example that's closest home for me. If you if you look at what happens as as students are increasingly have to take on more and more debt to become educated, um, they are more and more concerned with and worried. About paying off that debt and less and less likely to uh, study areas where the financial payoff is less clear to them or seems more risky, right? So, debt, which is um, in some sense a debt directly acts on what is possible, right? Because the important thing about college debt and the way that it restructures education is no one ever says to anyone, You can't study these things. Um, It's not a direct inhibition, it's more um, a sense of what is possible and what is viable that produces the same effect as a direct inhibition because it it channels people to spend their energy studying things that they think are more marketable and so on. Um, And as far as a kind of um, uh, uh, trans-individuality, of course, the interesting thing about debt is it's highly individuating in the sense that it becomes really difficult to say, you know, we the indebted um because everyone views their own debt as as their own set of um mistakes or actions they might have made, like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have gone to school here, maybe I shouldn't have um you know maybe that uh, that house was too expensive. Maybe I shouldn't have done this, shouldn't done that. It's a highly individuating um, and isolating. Um, the other thing about debt is that, you know, uh, and one of, you know, of course, the interesting things that happen, say, with some of the politicization around debt, you know, there was a movement that's happened at some schools and in some graduations where 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 people upon, graduate, uh, upon graduating would actually put the debt figure on the back of their little, you know, graduation clapboard, little hat thingy Um, You know, to to simply say this is how much money I owe now, Um, but also to, I think, break this kind of um, restricting individuation around debt, because um, if we think of this in kind of Marxist terms, right, that the exploitation of people's labor power, um, as much as there always was a part of capitalism incentive to individuate that as much as possible to make it appear as if it's you know, it's your contract, not everyone else's contract. It's your job position, so on. There was a an unavoidable collective dimension, especially when people you know work together in factories, call centers, etc. They can see that they're in a collective situation. That becomes a basis for their um, possible collective politics. Debt has this. Uh, ability to kind of isolate people because no one knows. And we're told not to kind of speak about such things because there's a kind of uh, an affect of shame around debt. So no one knows that everyone else is in the same indebted condition and no one quite feels comfortable speaking about it. So as long as everyone feels isolated in their debt, then there is no basis for, uh, the constitution of some kind of, I mean, I I know there have been student debt trites and so on attempts to collect, to create collective action around it, but it's, it's difficult, more difficult than the exploitation of labor because it is so individuated and isolating and and alienating and precisely the sense of almost like a little black box. I mean, it's strange that, you know, we often don't even know, um, you know, we're all tabulated and assessed in terms of our debtor status, um, you know, through our credit scores and so on, but we're kind of ignorant to how that is produced and how that is kind of, how that affects us. So debt is, uh, an incredibly, I mean, maybe not even individuating. I mean, the sense that, um, uh, and this is something that like Deleuze talks about when he talks about in the Postscript on Society's Control, the idea that when he says the person is no longer a person confined person in debt, but also the sense that that debt is um, often – this is part of financialization – managed at a level that is neither individual nor collective and that different debts are bought up together and reassembled and reassembled. In, we're kind of economically, financially, we're kind of constantly being taken apart and put back together in more exploitable, more revenue producing kind of totalities, often behind our backs and outside of any of our awareness.
1: Yeah, okay, that's a lot. But kind of last question here, Um, in the conclusion to quote you a little bit, um, trans individuality, as it has been developed here, makes it clear that the conditions of politics are less an event than multiple processes of transformation. The present is not some monolith. Politics then has as its condition not the event, not some ruptural break but with the existing order, but the tensions and divisions within the existing order. Politics is not a matter of waiting for some apocalypse event, or rupture, but is always taking place, even if disappointingly so, in the tensions and pressures that define every metastable articulation of individuation. So this passage here kind of not only echoes back to the first question I had for you, but also kind of made me think of your dedication. Um, The book is dedicated to the people who participated in Occupy Wall Street and Occupy Maine in 2012. So to kind of wrap all this up, what does political practice informed by trans individuality look like?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, in some sense, I feel like, you know, on one level, all political practice is necessarily trans individual. Um, but I also feel like, and, and and in the sense that it always, um, when when one engages in it, it always necessarily involves a collective dimension. Um, even, you know, when that collective dimension, I mean, this is something that, 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 Etienne Balibar talks about when he talks about rights, that even the rights to be kind of, you know, for privacy and to be separated from the political sphere necessarily have a collective dimension in their recognition as rights and in the, the advocation of them as rights. So that there's always a collective dimension, in all politics and also all politics is, is, necessarily shapes and reshapes one's um uh, one's individuation and that one uh becomes a different person through engaging in them but i also think that and here i think uh uh it's it's maybe worthwhile to think a little bit about the 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 fallout of um of occupy and so on in the sense that uh, I mean, I think one of the things that's very interesting about politics now is that, um, as much as I mean, th- those movements didn't really sustain themselves the level of of collectivities. There's, you know, they're not really the groups. The the you know the camps are gone. The groups aren't sort of ongoing. Um, and of course, it, it did. I mean, everyone probably has a story about it. The level of biography, but it did um, more or less reshape the some of the sphere of of trans-individuality in the sense that from them emerged a new set of a vocabulary, um, uh, the 99%, the 1% that has continued to linger on, um, and from them has emerged a new set of tactics Which we still see shaping going all over the world, from the Gilets Jaunes in in France to Hong Kong and so on, of uh, sort of mobile occupations that don't uh, utilize, um, you know, the site of the of of workplaces and don't utilize um, and and are are utilized to bring disparate people together. So one can argue that 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 those political events sort of. they linger on as uh, new vocabularies. I would also argue they linger on as as new affects, both in a in an increased sense of um, of anger and of of precarity and anxiety. That I think it shows itself that it can possibly manifest at different points in different times, all over the world, and uh, a shared sense of of um practices, although I'm I'm saying this also a little bit of a self-criticism because I feel like um uh, that these sensibilities, affects, vocabularies, et cetera, that continue to linger on, they're not enough to constitute a real politics. So I mean, every politics is trans individual, but but the trans individual dimension by itself, without um Becoming organized into n- new collectivities is probably not enough. Um, although, I guess the optimistic side of that is that I—it seems to me that it's hard not to see the way in which there is this kind of incoherent um, sensibility around, especially around issues of, of inequality, um, also issues of of, of precarity, and um, and so on. That at any moment it just takes the right um sort of uh, catalyst event to sort of transform it into something more stable um, and uh, and maybe that's that's the direction that politics are taking right now that in the sense that it's this constant back and forth between these um, shared but not necessarily pin downable sensibilities and their manifestation in concrete actions and concrete, um, uh, collectivities. Um, but that seems to be the kind of, um, the kind of moment we're living in.
1: Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, so final question, uh, what are you working on now and what can we maybe look forward to you from, from you?
2: Uh, so, and I feel like this is, this is kind of where a lot of my examples came from, um, and the direction I was going in, Currently, I'm working now on a on a book on work, and I'm especially interested in which I'm tentatively calling sort of a double shift because what I'm interested in, and this goes against some of the tendencies to, you know, uh, work in this rigid division between like base and superstructure economy and politics, um, what I'm interested in is the way in which notions and ideas of work are constantly doing a double shift in that they're as much as they're playing an economic role, they are constantly also playing a political role in this idea that, um, that notions about work and about productivity and about the demand to, you know, to, 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 be, to, to be productively engaged, to be seen as a worthwhile sort of individual um, work in the realm of politics, not just in the realm of the economy um, and the kind of back and forth between um, between the politics and economics of work is what I'm sort of working on right now, and also the the manifestation of the way in which these ideas shape not just um, politics and economics, but 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 permeate our culture um, as well.
1: Yeah, that sounds really interesting. So, Jason Reed, thank you so much for being with us.
2: Thank you.